A few years ago, when I was working over at Grace Community Church as Dean of Women for our Lagos Bible Institute, one of the girls who was in our program, who was an excellent student, probably a st straight-A student, came into my office one day, and she had a stack of letters with a rubber band wrapped around them. And she said, these are letters that I've received since the beginning of school from my mother. And she said, um, there are letters that my mother just constantly criticizes me and constantly rips me to shreds. And every time I get one of these letters from her, I'm upset for days afterwards. And I can't bring myself to burn these letters and get rid of them. But as long as I keep them with me, I have a tendency to keep going back to them and rereading them and feeding my mind with what's in there and being hurt and discouraged all over again. And she said, could I, since I can't get rid of them, could I give them to you? And would you do something with them, put them in a file and keep them, or maybe in time you can burn them and destroy them and that won't bother me, but would you do something with these letters? And I said, sure, I'll be glad to do that, and I put them away in a file. And uh, she began to share with me a little bit about her desires for the future and her desires to grow in the Lord. And she said, would you pray with me about somebody to disciple me? Maybe even about your helping me find an older woman in the church who would do that for me. And I said, yes, I'll pray with you about that. And some time went by and I had not found anybody yet. And she came back to see me one day. And she said, I've got to leave and fly to the state where my mother lives because some neighbors just called me. Um, that they found my mother in her house unconscious and they've put her in the hospital and they need me to fly there. They're not sure the state of her health. And she said, it's very hard for me to go and I want to tell you a little bit about what I'm going to find there when I get there because I need you to pray for me. And it's also linked to the reason why I need somebody to be a disciple and to be an encourager for me. And I said, okay, tell me what you're going to find when you get there. And she said, well, my mother, I think she'd been divorced from her dad for some time. She said she lives in a house all by herself. And she's an alcoholic, and she drinks a lot. And the neighbors tell me that they found lip, empty liquor bottles all over the house, that my mom had probably not cleaned the house in several weeks. She said, my mom also, um, I guess because she's lonely and she doesn't know how to relate to other people, so she has this crazy thing about cats, and so she has about 15 cats. And she said the cats had been living in the house with her, and because she had gotten sick and, um, and was unconscious, and the cats hadn't been fed, and they were locked up in the house, and the litter box was full. She said, the cats have made messes all over the house. So she said, you can imagine the kind of odor that those people walked into when they went to find my mother in there. She said, but no, she said, it's worse than that. She said, because the cats hadn't been fed for a while, she said that three or four of the cats were dead. One of the ones that was dead was in the bed with my mother. And she said, it was just an incredibly ugly scene that the people who finally got into the house and found my mother and called the paramedics and took her to the hospital, that was the kind of thing they found. And she said, that was the kind of thing I've grown up with all my life. She said, that the only thing I remember about my dad was the times that he beat me. And one time I had a little puppy that I really loved, and he took a gun and put it to the dog's head and shot the dog. She said, that's the kind of home life that I've come from. And I think I cried with her that day. And as she left my office, I began to pray about someone to spend time with her and to be an encouragement to her. And when I would pray for her and think about that, it just seemed like the Lord would always bring to my mind a certain woman in the church. She was a pastor's wife, and she was teaching some women's Bible studies. And every time she would come to my mind, I would think, you know, she's so busy, there's no way that she can do this. And I knew of three major commitment, ministry commitments that she had right then, and I knew she couldn't do it. But about three or four different times, I prayed and prayed, and when I did, this woman's face would always come to my mind and finally I said Lord I don't know if you're trying to tell me something about this but I'm going to go talk to her 
So I called her husband over in the office and he said, she's in here with me right now. Why don't you come over and talk to her right now? And I did that and I laid the whole thing out before her and she just looked at her husband and they smiled and she said that's really funny because she said I've just been in here telling my husband that out of the three major commitments that I have right now, two of them are going to end in a month's time. And that I was just asking him, wonder what I should do with this time that I'm going to have. wonder if I should get involved in discipleship. And that was about the time that you called. Now, I don't always have those kinds of experiences with the Lord. I wish I did. But that was real exciting to me. And after a month's time, the two of them began to get together. And they began to um, be an encouragement to each other. And the girl eventually got married to a fine Christian guy, and they established a good Christian home. And the last time I heard about how she was doing, she was expecting her first baby. And this woman who had discipled her was playing the mom role and giving a baby shower for her. And all of this came flooding back to my mind two days ago when you remember all the ladies from the Ladies Auxiliary who were here? That woman who discipled that girl was here that day for that meeting and was one of the ladies sitting in our audience for the chapel. When I think about discipleship, that's one of the stories that I think about, I guess because God blessed me so much through watching that. But when I think about discipleship too, I even think about last year, which was my first year out here on the campus and interacting with some of the students, talking to some of you even, and hearing different students say, uh, I'm so excited, I found somebody to disciple me. And I would say, really, tell me about it. And they'd say, I've been watching this girl for a while. And she's another student, and she's not that much older than I am. She's not an older woman, like 20 or 30 years older than I am. But she's, but she's mature. And she has a walk with the Lord that I don't have yet. And I just, I watched her for a while, and then I prayed about it, and then I asked her if she would spend some time with me, and she would disciple me. And you know what? She said yes. And that's another thing that I think about when I think about discipleship. Just watching uh, some of you in relationships last year and some of the growth that you felt like you saw in your own lives. Let's think for a minute about what is discipleship. Um, I believe the simplest definition that, I, that I've heard in a long time was one that I heard Dr. MacArthur give the other day. And he said, just brought down to its absolute basic, it would be a relationship with a spiritual goal. A relationship with a spiritual goal. If you have your Bibles, would you look at Matthew chapter 28 with me? That's the passage that we're all familiar with in terms of talking about making disciples. And we'll just look at it for a minute. Matthew 28 and verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Okay, what's, what's the main command in those verses? Make disciples, right? It's really the going part is more, it's a participle. It's kind of like as you go. It's kind of assuming that we're all going to kind of, all the Christians are going to go out into the world. So it's as you're going, as you're already doing this, and you're out there with all these people, then make disciples. And then what follows that? What are the two main aspects of making disciples? Number one is evangelizing people. It's sharing Christ, and it's leading them to a personal relationship with the Lord. And then what's second? Jesus is teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. Is that merely a communication of information? Would it be? It's not going to be enough, right? Because if you're observing what Jesus has commanded, it means that you're behaving that way, that you're living it out, that we're applying those things in our lives, right? 
Okay, on this campus, for the most part, there may be some of um, students who at times here discover that they thought maybe they were saved and then they come to realize that they really have not been. And so it begins, discipleship becomes like growth from being a baby Christian in a sense. But probably for the majority of you here, the first step has already been taken care of. And you're going to be looking for a disciple, or you're going to be looking for somebody who is simply helping you with the second step of that. And that's growing to maturity, becoming like Christ, learning how to observe and have your life behave in ways that are according to all of the things that he taught. And that would be maturity. What then would be the goals of discipleship? And I'd say there are two goals. One would be maturity in Christ. And that's the second part of that Matthew 28 passage. Maturity in Christ. And the other thing would be that we train disciplers. When we function as a discipler, we're not simply discipling somebody else in order that their life can work better and they can be more mature. That's one of the goals. But we're also discipling them so that they can become mature in the Lord and then turn around and do that same kind of thing for somebody else and help somebody else to become a discipler. 2 Timothy 2.2, Paul, in that verse, Paul says to Timothy, These things commit to faithful men, and the word there is like for mankind, it could be men or women. These things commit to faithful men or women who can teach others also. Right? We're discipling, we're teaching those so that they can then turn around and teach somebody else. Think about the disciples that Jesus trained. He trained his disciples to be able to turn around and to influence literally thousands of people. They had a great influence. How about some practical considerations? Let me just, and and we could do hours just on this, but let me just throw out three or four things, maybe practical kinds of things for you to consider if you're thinking about looking for someone to disciple you. One of the things we've really emphasized on the campus here is encouraging people to seek a disciple who goes to the same local church that you do, right? The main reason for that is that you're you're involved in the same place. It means that your heart and your loyalty is going to be in the same place and the same kinds of ministries and what it is that your church is doing. It means that you're going to see each other more often and probably get to spend more time together. It means that you're going to hear the same sermon on Sunday morning and get to discuss it with each other during the week instead of trying to get somebody to explain, well, now, what did your pastor say? Well, this is what my pastor said. It's like you're, you're in on the same wavelength and you can talk about the same kinds of things. Plus, be just committed to the same ministry in that church. Another thing that we would recommend is that that girls disciple girls and guys disciple guys. The passage in Titus 2 that talks about discipleship for women talks about older women teaching younger women. And generally that probably means chronologically older women, but it could even relate to spiritual maturity when we have women who are all fairly near the same age. You're looking to somebody who maybe spiritually is a little bit older than you are, a little bit more mature. When guys and girls try to disciple each other, things just get too complicated. There get to be distractions involved there. Were there other considerations other than just your spiritual commitment in that relationship? Um, How often are you going to meet? Probably about once a week. Again, that's not a rigid rule, but most people find that if you wait much longer than that, you kind of lose touch, and hopefully you'll see each other more than once a week. But maybe for a time to just sit down and really kind of talk through things. Um, There'll probably be some sort of regular either assignments or things that you're working through together. Maybe you're going to study a certain portion of Scripture together. Maybe you're going to work on a certain book together. There'll be something that you'll be kind of working on in terms of your growth, and that when you get together, you talk about those things and you share about them. 
Another aspect of discipleship is accountability. And that simply means, I think, that um, most of us have a pretty good idea, if we've been Christians for a while, what we ought to be doing. But sometimes we need a little bit of help and encouragement from somebody else to say, yeah, but are you doing it? Do you ever find that if you ask somebody, will you ask me next week? It's like, here's this thing, I really need to do it, but I know there's going to be this tendency to procrastinate. Will you ask me a week from now whether or not I've done it? And if you ask somebody that you really respect a lot, there's going to be a lot more tendency during the week to, to say, oh yeah, I can't go in there and tell her I didn't do any of this. i got to do it. i got to be motivated when she holds me accountable, when she asks me. I, um, in just the last month or so, I've had two different girls, one here on the campus and one in the college department over at Grace Community, come and talk to me about discipleship. And um, both of them I love dearly and would love to be able to make that commitment. It was a really hard thing to say to them. Um, I have as many commitments as I can take right now, and to take on any more would mean to not be faithful to the ones that I've already committed to. But the thing that excited me so much and impressed me about the attitudes of these two girls was that both of them, when I said, what are you looking for in discipleship? They both said, I'm looking for some accountability. I'm looking for somebody who's willing to help bring some correction to my life, to tell me when I'm doing wrong, because nobody around me will do that for me. And I need some encouragement in that way. And there's such a contrast between that kind of person who says, I need correction in my life, and I'm looking for it, and I want somebody to love me enough to give me that. And then there are other people that when the slightest little bit of confrontation, the slightest little bit of correction, when somebody says, you know, what about this in your life? Why are you doing this? And the response is, oh, yeah, well, who are you to tell me about that? I don't see that your life is so straight. Do you get the difference in the attitude? You know, it's just totally, totally different. It's exciting to see somebody who really wants correction in their life. Okay, let's talk about the marks of a discipler. Um, depending on how we did this, different people might give you a little bit different kinds of things. They might use different terms or divide it up a little bit differently. We could probably come up with 25 or 30 things if we wanted to try to get it real specific. What I want to do is try to give you some overall things and try to give you seven marks of a discipler. Now, the reason why these marks of a discipler, character qualities, are so incredibly important is because, let me phrase this, think about this and see if you think this is true. The character of the person who is the discipler is largely going to determine the quality of the discipleship. Would you agree with that? The character qualities of the discipler will largely determine the quality of the discipleship. Some people get the idea that you can go out and read a book on discipleship and develop a method and say, hey, I've got the, you know, the ten guidelines down for what you do if you're going to be a good discipler. And I've got that all worked out and now I can go disciple somebody. But there's somebody who's not really grown very much in the Lord and they're not really applying the things that they're learning in their own life. And the discipleship is going to suffer because more than anything else, discipleship is transformation based on a relationship more than it is simply a communication of information. See, the thing is, you are going to become like, to some extent, the person that you ask to disciple you. You will begin to show some of their strengths, and you will begin to show some of their weaknesses, and you will become like them to a large extent. So it's important who it is that you ask to do that for you.
Okay, but if we come up with these seven things that we're looking for in terms of the character of a person, number one, I would say, is a love for God and a desire to know Him. A love for God and a desire to know Him. Some people came to Jesus one day, and they didn't phrase the question this way, but basically what they were saying was, Jesus, tell us, what is the one most important thing in all of life? If you could do one thing in all of your life, Jesus, tell us, what would it be? And you remember what he said? Jesus said, the foremost commandment is this. It's in Matthew 22:37, And he said, the foremost commandment is this, that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. And what's he saying? That we need to love God with our total being. It's not really that we need to divide up all those things necessarily and talk about each one. But he's using that to sum up the total person. That with our total being, we need to love God. Okay, so you say, all right, I want to find a disciple who loves God, but how am I going to recognize that person? It's not real obvious to begin with. Let me just mention some things that maybe would have something to do with that. One would be, remember that Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Probably the number one characteristic of a person who really loves God is a desire to be obedient and who is beginning, who's not perfect, but who is exercising and growing in that direction of, of exercising obedience in their lives. Okay, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. I think a person who loves God is going to care about the things that God cares about. Have you ever been, um, maybe you've had this experience yourself or been around a friend that uh, you knew that she was not remotely interested in baseball. In fact, she had told you that many times, that baseball was one of the most boring sports that she had, you know, ever seen in her whole life. But the next thing you know, she starts dating this guy who's on the baseball team, and what happens? All of a sudden, she develops this whole new interest in baseball. Isn't it true? I mean, she gets interested in all kinds of things about baseball she never was interested in before. Because you tend to begin to care about the things that somebody you love a great deal cares about. Um, I think a person who loves God is not ashamed to talk about God and her relationship with Him. You might even apply that to um, a dating or a man-woman relationship. Have you ever been around a girl who's in love and that it just seems like there's only one subject she can talk about? That that's all, and you get to where you just want to say, I mean, can't you say anything to me other than something about this guy? I mean, it's great to hear about him, but can't you talk about one other thing? So somebody who's not ashamed of the person they love and, and eager to talk about that person. And then the other thing I would say is that they love to spend time with that person. They love to spend time with the Lord. Okay, so the number one thing would be that they have a love for God and a desire to know Him. And then secondly, I would say that they're a student of the Word, a student of the Word of God. Turn with me to, and again, I'm sure this is a verse that's familiar to you, but 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. And the question here is, why is it so important for somebody who's going to be a disciple or to be a student of God's Word? I mean, why is that such a big deal? And listen to these verses. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for what? For teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. It just kind of sums up everything. That the man of God may be adequate, 
equipped for every good work. What is it that's so key to our growth and to equipping us for service? It's God's Word. And that's why it's important for each one of us to be a good student of the Word. It doesn't mean that any one of us is going to have a perfect knowledge of the Word. It doesn't mean that you have to be a Bible scholar or have a master's or a doctorate in biblical studies before you can be a good discipler. It simply means somebody who's really committed to the Word and to learning it, to growing in their understanding of it, and to really applying the principles to their own life. I imagine some of you can relate to this and have had the same experience I have. I grew up in a church, was in Sun, uh, church and Sunday school for many years. And I came to be um, probably around your age or a little bit older, and it began to dawn on me that I had almost zero Bible knowledge, that if somebody had given me a Bible knowledge test, I probably could not have passed it. And then I spent one year in a Bible institute here in Los Angeles, probably similar to to what some of you are going through with the institute program right now, where you just have one whole year just getting saturated with biblical studies. And I wasn't uh, an expert on scripture when I finished that year, but I can tell you there was a vast difference from what had been before and what there was after that year. Uh, For a long time I had been the kind of person that my friends would say, um, let's get together, let's talk about such and such, or give me your advice, or tell me what you think about this. You know, when I look back on that, I shudder to think the kind of advice that I gave a lot of times, because I'm sure that it was probably about 50% scripture and about 50% Betty Price's personal opinion. It wasn't worth very much and wasn't based on scripture. And I really didn't know the difference. I thought it was all great. And I thought my opinions were very biblical. But after studying the scriptures for a year, and then for years since then, I know that that wasn't true. That we need to be good students of the word. 1 Peter 2, 2 says that we're to long for the word like newborn babes long for milk. You think about a little baby that when it gets hungry, it cries and screams and kicks its feet. And nothing will do until milk is provided for that baby. And we need to examine our own hearts about whether or not we have that kind of commitment to the Word and that kind of hunger for it. Okay, so number one would be a love for God. Number two would be a student of the Word. And number three would be a love for people and a servant's heart. A love for people and a servant's heart. Mark 10.45 says that the Son of Man even did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That's Jesus himself. When I think about Jesus and servanthood, I think about the cross, but I also think about John 13. Remember where he washed the disciples' feet? The kind of service that that was? Do you ever think about um, what it was like at that time? You've heard about how they had their dinner. They came in for the the supper together, and they're all reclining. And they're, um, you know, they're kind of like lying down or maybe up on one elbow, and their faces are all toward the food, and their feet are kind of out here. But they're not like, like ours would be down on the floor underneath the table. They're kind of out on these lounges type things. And so their feet are kind of up and around there. And... um, you know, even today in, in the city of Jerusalem, some of you have been there and you know this too, that it's like when you walk around the street, it's kind of like the ancient city and the modern city are kind of jammed up against each other there. And there are parts of the city that as you walk around, the, the guys are leading their donkeys through and the guys are leading their camels through. And uh, <clears throat> these animals don't know the proper places to go and, you know, and deposit their things that they tend to leave right along the sidewalk where you're walking. And you have to walk around all kinds of stuff. 
And that was part of the problem back then, too. They didn't have paved sidewalks, but they had real dusty streets, and they wore sandals, and they stepped in all sorts of awful things. And so when they got to somebody's house to have a meal, the person who owned that house and who was the host was to have a servant there to wash their feet when they arrived, right? So that when you lay down on these things and had your feet kind of up in public view and you're eating, all that stuff was cleaned away, and, and it was clean, and it didn't smell, and... And it was a very pleasant kind of dinner. So here you have all the disciples and Jesus. And they arrived and nobody washed their feet. And here they are, all the way, they've had dinner. Remember that? They went all the way through dinner. And I just think in my own mind that those disciples, because they were so used to that custom of having their feet washed before they ate, they must have been through part of that dinner, lying there eating and thinking, this is really awful. It kind of stinks in here. And nobody's washed my feet. You're not supposed to eat without having your feet washed. I mean, what's the matter? But isn't it interesting that not one of them was willing to assume the responsibility and say, okay, I'll be the one to wash everybody else's feet. Because you can't do that when you're fighting with everybody else to say who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. And that's what they were into. So here it is, the end of dinner, and Jesus gets up and he takes the towel and ties it around him, and that's the garment of a slave. And then he comes around and begins to wash their feet. I mean, how would you feel at that point? I mean, they must have been so incredibly embarrassed. I mean, they wanted somebody to wash their feet, but they didn't want it to be Jesus, you know. They all knew that that wasn't what he was supposed to be doing, but none of them wanted to do it. And then the interesting thing is it's like when they finish, it's kind of like with Peter's response. It's like most of us would want to say, oh, Jesus, let me wash your feet. I'd love to be the one to wash your feet. And Jesus says, no, there's something I want you to do, but that's not it. I want you to wash each other's feet. And then we just kind of cringe because then we look at each other and think, I don't want to wash her feet, you know. I want to wash your feet, Jesus. But Jesus calls us to a life of love and the kind of sacrificial service that he gave. And even as, as leaders, and disciples in some sense are leaders, even as leaders, we're called to serve people. But even as leaders, with a sense of authority in some ways, where you call them to be firm at times, even that kind of authority should carry a touch of gentleness and of compassion. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll feed my sheep. And sometimes we get real arrogant with people, and we think he said, if you love me, beat my sheep. Beat them into shape. and Get them all straightened out. And that's not what he said at all. He said, I'm the good shepherd, and I lay down my life for the sheep because I love them. Okay, number four, for the mark of a discipler, I would say a commitment to the local church. A commitment to the local church. You've heard a lot about that around here, that the church is the only institution that Christ left on this earth to do his work. It's the place where we exercise our spiritual gifts and where we minister to one another. This Bible school that I was in, um, that I was telling you about where I spent one year and then and another year after that studying the Word, one of the guys who was a teacher in that school had gone through a period of rebellion in his own life and had been very, very critical of the organized church and had not been real committed to it. And he talked about how the Lord finally convicted him that the Lord was so committed to the church and loved it so much that he needed to love it too. And that he needed to get his attitude right about the church. Number five, an effective discipler needs to be an example. An example. Um, 
friend who told me some time ago about a job that he took. Some of you who've been one or two of my this is the broom I want you to use. And he took a moment to show it to me. He said, this is how I want you to do it. And my friend stood there and watched while the guy swept out the whole room of this warehouse and showed him exactly where to, you know, get rid of the trash and everything. And then he said, and then after you do that, I want you to dust the shelves. And here's the stuff I want you to use. And he said, and this is how I want you to do it. So my friend watched while the president who owned the company dusted all the shelves. And then he took him in the little bathroom there. And he said, um, this, the next thing I want you to do is to clean the bathroom. And he said, here's all the stuff that you need, and here's how I want you to do it. And he said that when this man who owned the company came to the toilet, he said he took the sponge and the scrub brush and all this stuff, and he said he got down on his hands and knees, and he put his hand in the toilet to scrub this toilet. And my friend who was telling me this said, he said, you know, even if the guy had not demonstrated to me how to sweep the floor, I probably would have done it almost exactly the same way he did it. And he said, even if he hadn't shown me how to dust the shelves, I probably would have done it pretty much that same way. But he said when he left me, the, if he had left me the instructions to clean the toilet, he said, I would have found another way to do it other than getting down on my hands and knees and putting my hand in there. He said, but every time I went in there to work and I thought about my ways and my strategies of getting that toilet cleaned, he said, I had this visual image in my mind of the man who was the president who owned the company down on his hands and knees with his hand in the toilet cleaning it. And every time I would have to say, if the man who owns the company is willing to do that. Who am I to say, I'm too good for that, I won't do that? That's the power of an example. Somebody who influences you spiritually, that shows you, just for one example, how to love people when it's hard to do that. You spend time with them and you see them working through a situation where somebody really mistreats them and you see how they're able to love even when they're mistreated. And then when the time comes where somebody mistreats you in your life and you have a tendency to want to say, oh yeah, you know, and then you, and you think back to that disciple and you think, now I've had an example of how you respond to people who mistreat you. Who am I to get angry and respond differently? The power of an example. Number six, an effective discipler has a commitment to their own spiritual growth. A commitment to their own spiritual growth. There are people who don't think that they've arrived. They're not arrogant. They're not domineering. They're not somebody who comes along and says, I'm up here and I'm the discipler and you're down there. You're, you're the disciple and I'll teach you, you know, how to be what you ought to be. The discipler is the humble person who comes alongside you and says, yeah, I'm the discipler and maybe I've walked with the Lord a little bit longer than you have or maybe I've had some more opportunities for growth than you have, but, um, but I can learn from you too. And I'm here to walk alongside you, and I want to help, and I want to encourage, and, and maybe even teach, but I want to learn from you too. And that it becomes a mutual learning experience. I think that means that the discipler is a person who's willing to share weaknesses at times, and to ask for prayer, just as you would expect a disciple to do them. It's interesting in this area too, that disciples, this is a real important statement, listen to this, disciples will be weak where their disciples are weak. Do you believe that? I think for a long time, one of the real weak areas of my life has been in the area of evangelism. I am definitely not gifted that way, and yet I have always recognized my responsibility to share the gospel with other people, but I knew that was a real weak area in my life. And I can look back over a number of years of discipling girls, and I can see that they have exactly the same weakness in their lives that I've had in mine. 
And that was one reason why last year I went through the discipleship evangelism program for a whole semester at the church. And that was one reason why I made a commitment to go with the New York Outreach team this summer. It was not only to fulfill some leadership responsibilities there and to be a help, but it was because I knew that I needed that that I needed to be out on the streets learning how to talk with people again and, and being open to sharing like that and being willing to learn from other people who are gifted in evangelism and, and who love to do that kind of thing and people just can't wait to receive the Lord when they share and that I need to be around people like that. Um, it's been exciting to me that one of the girls I started discipling last year, I think she's stronger in that area. She's a good bit younger than I am, but she's stronger in that area than I am. And it's been great for me to spend time around her and to hear about how she's sharing Christ with people. And she, in a sense, has been my teacher in that area, and she's been a real example to me, and it's been great. Okay, number seven. This is our last one. A commitment to prayer for their disciples. A person who's an effective discipler will have a commitment to prayer for their disciples. Write down John chapter 17 and sometime take a look at that chapter and read through it. The entire chapter is Jesus praying for his disciples. Do you remember that? You know, praying um, that they would be strong in the midst of persecution, praying that there would be great unity among them, uh, praying that they would have a strong testimony, praying that they would glorify God, Jesus praying for his disciples. I don't think that anybody should disciple more people than they're willing to faithfully pray for. Because if, if you're not praying for somebody that you're teaching or discipling, basically on a real practical level what that's saying is, I'm the teacher here, and if they're going to grow, it's going to be through me. And that's an incredibly arrogant way of leaving out the work of the Holy Spirit. Right? I mean, because if anybody's going to grow, it's not going to really be through you or me apart from the Lord. It's got to be the Lord who causes somebody's growth. We just happen to be channels of that. So if we try to disciple somebody without faithfully and regularly praying for them, it's almost like we're leaving out the role of the Holy Spirit in that ministry. I think it's great, too, to, to pray for your disciples sometimes when they're there. <clears throat> There's a woman uh, back in the South where I grew up. She was my Sunday school teacher when I was in high school. And through the years, she's continued to be a wonderful friend. And when I go back there to visit my folks, I love to go over to her house. And at some point while I'm there to have her, we usually will get down and pray for a while. And it's just the most incredible thing. I can almost go for, I get back there about once a year, and I can almost go for a year on her prayer for me. I mean, have you ever had somebody pray for you that way to where you just feel so incredible? incredibly encouraged and built up when they finish. Okay, what I'd like you to do, let me just run by those again. Have you written all of them down? The seven marks of a, of a good or effective discipler would be a love for God and a desire to know Him, to be a student of the Word of God, to have a love for people and a servant's heart, a commitment to the local church, to be a faithful example, to be a person with a commitment to their own spiritual growth, recognizing that they're not totally mature yet, that they're in the process of growth as well, and a commitment to pray for their disciples. As we think about those seven things, I'm going to ask if you bow your heads in prayer. Let me just raise some questions for you to think about, and then I'll close in prayer for us. <clears throat> Are you willing to, to pray about whether you need to be discipled by someone else? Are you willing to look around for someone who shows some evidence of these seven qualities in their lives? 
Are you willing to ask God to lead you to someone with whom you can have a relationship with a spiritual goal? Are you willing to trust God to meet your need in His timing without being impatient if it takes longer than you really wanted it to? And to let Him meet your need maybe even a different way than you expected? Not to get your heart set on one particular person even though the Lord may not be leading in that person's life to have them make a commitment to you. Or if somebody comes along that... um, Maybe somebody else directs you to, and it's a little bit different than what you expected, but to recognize that maybe God can work through that person. And as you think about these things and pray about them, and if you really want it, would you be willing to have the courage to to go to that person and ask them if they would pray about making that kind of commitment to you and spending time with you?